Hello, and welcome to Learning for Life at Gustavus, the podcast about people teaching and learning at Gustavus Adolphus College and the myriad ways that Gustavus liberal arts education provides a lasting foundation for lives of fulfillment and purpose. I'm your host, Greg Castor, faculty member in the Department of History. Describing my guest today, one of her classmates said, quote, if you see Tyra out and about, there's a 100% guarantee that she will be a light brightening other people's day. Her ability to serve her community and build connections is admirable to say the least. I wouldn't say she embodies the gusty spirit as much as I would say she sets a new standard for what it means to be a gusty. To all of which I can only say spot on. Tyra Banks grew up in Liberia through age 13 and then attended high school in Minnesota and Rhode Island before enrolling at Gustavus, where she is now completing her senior year. A double major in biology and classics, she is a member also uh, of the National Classics Honor Society, uh, Eta Sigma Phi. She's a member of the track and field team, leader of the Pan-African Student Organization, or PASO. Uh, she's past co-president of the Diversity Education and Exploration Project, or DEEP, at Gustavus. And this is just to mention some of her extensive academic and co-curricular engagement. Tyra and her story offer a compelling example of what, of what can occur when a motivated student and Gustavus combine. She truly has set the bar high for what it means to be a Gusty, and it's great to speak with her on the podcast about all that and more. Welcome, Tyra. Hi. <laughs> Great to have you on. We have not met in person until just now. <laughs> you're, on, you're on one screen and I'm on the other. Yeah. But, yeah. Great to have you on. Um, it's actually, you know, it was actually Professor Yuri Hong in Classics who suggested uh, you to me for the podcast. Some time ago, I recorded with Yuri and uh, your name came up. <laughs> so here we are. That's so cute. I love Yuri. She's great. Yeah. He thanks is great. So much. Thanks so much for coming. And um, I know you're just coming from track. Probably get into that later, track practice. But let's just talk right now. Um, you're on campus, right? Yes, I am. Okay. What's it been like? Um, and you're a collegiate fellow, I should add, which is uh, essentially like a, for some listeners who may not know, a, an RA, a residential assistant in the dorm. What's it been like uh, so far, at least this semester, uh, amid the pandemic as you're as you're going to class and 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 being a CF for sure it's really weird um so I'm a CF in Euler which is a building for upperclassmen so sophomores juniors and seniors and my residents uh are primarily made up of juniors I have a few sophomores on my floor too but it's extremely difficult to get upperclassmen to engage in activities as is and on top of the epidemic, um, everything just is just even weirder. Trying yeah. to get them to come to events that are virtual becomes increasingly difficult because they go from staring at their screens every day for classes or student organizations, and they have to come back and stare at more screens with me. So we've been trying to brainstorm a lot of creative ways to engage with our residents, um, to get them to talk with other people, even though they really can't talk with someone else unless they have a roommate. Uh, but we're really trying to do at the best we can because with the circumstances that we've been served, things aren't ideal, as you would probably think. Yeah, well said. Um, and you actually raise a really important point, which I, I had not really thought of. Of course, it makes sense. Um, you know, even I feel that, right? It's, I, you know, the, the screen fatigue or Zoom fatigue, as it's being called, and how that might affect um, the willingness or the eagerness of students to do more, more screen time, even for something they might be interested in, whether it's, you know, a co-curricular activity or, or a movie, whatever. And that's, that's a good point. Um, we'll come back to your senior year amid COVID later on, but let's uh, let's start with your own story. As I mentioned, you you grew up in Liberia through about age thirteen, I guess. Tell us a little bit about that part of your life first. For sure. So my family and I are we are from Liberia, uh, Monrovia, Liberia. I was born there, um, lived there up until I was thirteen, like you mentioned, and then moved to the United States. Um, Liberia is definitely different, obviously, than the United States. Um, I went to an all-girls private Catholic school from kindergarten up until I left. So up until, I want to say, the end of my freshman year, start of my sophomore year. And it was a really great experience because I got to see 
a lot about gratitude and how much things we take for granted. I didn't really realize that until I moved to the United States and then started to think back on my experiences and kind of compare that to what I've experienced here in the, in the U.S. Um, but yeah, my family and I grew up there. Um, I have, what is it, four siblings. They were also born and raised there. Uh, it was kind of sad leaving because uh, I thought I was going to graduate from the school that, I, like I said, I, I had been in since kindergarten. But I ended up graduating from the United States instead. But I still keep in contact with my family and friends there. It's just really weird sometimes because sometimes I feel a disconnect from them because I've been here in the United States for almost seven years now. And I feel like I've missed out on a lot of things that I could have grown with from my Liberian side. And now I feel like I've just created this facade that's like a American tire or American version of me that I feel kind of disconnected from my friends. Yeah, but I try to stay on top of that. Yeah, I, I mean, I was wondering, I, I think that's interesting. And I, I remember speaking for the podcast with um, uh, a professor uh, and talking about her, it's Angelique Weyer, if you know her, and, and she teaches Spanish, but talking about being being both Mexican and, you know, U.S. or American, quote unquote, mm-hmm. at the same time. Do you, um, did your, did your, are your parents still there or did they move with you when you came to the U.S.? Um, so first we came to my dad who just brought us to just get us settled and then he went back, but my mom moved here with us about three years ago, and now we all live in Maple Grove, Minnesota. Okay. Were your parents working, uh, doing some kind of work in, in Liberia, I assume? Yeah, my dad has a construction company um, back home called Topaz Enterprise, and he does construction, like real construction, well construction, any and everything. And my mom works here in the U.S., at um, a senior assisted senior living uh, facility called Arbor Lakes. Oh wow, that's great! Mm-hmm. And now, are your siblings back there, or they're here with you? I have so I have two older sisters. The oldest is married. Uh, she's currently in law school back in Liberia, and my second older sister just graduated from Concordia Moorhead in 2020 right when the pandemic hit. Um, she graduated with a computer science degree. She's now working at Wells Fargo. And funny enough, we used to compete against each other for track because her school is also part of the Mayak. So I used to see her at a lot of track meets. And then my younger sister is 12. She's in sixth grade. And then we have an adopted little brother who's five. So my older sister lives in Liberia with her family because she has a son and a husband. And then my older sister and my younger sister and I live here with my mom. And our little brother lives back in Liberia with my dad. Oh, fantastic. Interesting. I have never been, I've never been to any country in Africa. <laughs> you know, just as a U.S. historian and teaching about um, slavery and slave people in the, you know, the American colonization society in Liberia. Mm-hmm. Did you, were you in Monrovia? The, is that's the capital? Were you there the whole time or were? Um, so I was born in Monrovia. So I like grew up there up until I was, I want to say maybe nine and then my family moved more to the countryside. So we lived in Margibi County, which is closer to the airport. And it was I think it was mostly because that's where a lot of land availability opened up. And that's where a lot more people moved in. It's quieter too, because the Monrovia is a lot is a busy city. So right. I lived in Margibi, but my school was in Monrovia. So we had to drive an hour, kind of like driving from Maple Grove to Gustavus to go to school every day. Well, sure. I didn't drive, but <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a lot of driving. The, yeah. uh, and then was was the choice of uh, was the choice of the Catholic school was that because you were raised Catholic or or was that just this is a you know an excellent school this is where we want our daughter to go. Mm. Funny enough, I actually wasn't raised Catholic. Um, my family is Episcopalian, which is super close to Catholic because they're a part of the Anglo-Saxon um, little branch. But yeah. my dad's sisters and I think some of his nieces had went to that school because it's. It, I think it still is the best school in Liberia or maybe one of the best now. And um, Liberia is a very patriarchal country. And my dad wanted to ensure that we got the best education that me and my sisters could have acquired. So he sent us there. Um, my sisters went there. Like I said, some of his nieces, some of, my, some of my cousins went there. So it just became kind of family tradition. Plus, it was one of the best schools. So everything just made sense to send us there. That's great. Your parents were looking out for you. By the way, I was uh, I was bet my dad is. Uh, was he's passed away Greek American? His parents came from Greece, and so I baptized oh, cool. in the Greek Orthodox Church. I have no memory of that. Um, <laughs> basically, was raised in the, the Episcopal Church in a suburb of Chicago. Oh, cool. so 
I can relate to what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> About it being similar to, you know, especially High Episcopal, not all that different, except the Mass wasn't, then they were still doing the Catholic Mass in Latin. And, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But that's just such an interesting story. So you, you go to high school in Minnesota and then Rhode Island for your senior year. How did you find your way to Gustavus? Why Gustavus? So my, my path to Gustavus is pretty interesting. So I moved here to the United States when I was in 10th grade. Um, I was 13 years old at the time, which is very weird to say to some people nowadays. And we lived in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. So I went to Brooklyn Center High School uh, sophomore and junior year. And then my senior year, like you said, we moved to Rhode Island. And then I had a friend that went to Brooklyn Center High School that actually got accepted to Gustavus. And he had posted it on his Snapchat and was like, oh, I just got into Gustavus. I'm so excited. And I was like, what the heck is a Gustavus? How do you even say this school's name? And he was like, oh, it's a school in St. Peter, Minnesota. I had no idea St. Peter was even a Minnesota city. So many things I was just lost and just dumbfounded. And he was saying, yeah, because they gave him a lot of financial aid, too. And at the time, I was looking for the school that was going to give me the most financial aid because my mentality was, well, college isn't going to pay for itself. So mm -hmm. if I'm smart, I might as well use my brain to pay for college. So then I was just like, he goes, yeah, you should apply and we can go there. Oh, my gosh, we're going to be buddies and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I was like, sure. So I applied for Gustavus. I got in. And I got a lot of financial aid. But then I started to consider, I was like, OK, so it's in a very small town. It's far away from home. And then I was like checking all those things on my list. I was like, okay, don't want to be too close to home because my mom's going to be a little crazy. Checking all those things off and I was like, good financial aid. Plus, um, everyone in my old school knew me as the like the younger sophomore, or younger junior, younger senior or whatever. So I wanted a clean slate and a fresh start. And right. my friend actually decided to go to Carleton by the time I got accepted to Gustavus. So then I thought, well, I don't know anyone there. And that's going to be very perfect for me to start anew and start fresh. So I decided to come to Gustavus. I actually didn't even tour Gustavus until two weeks before we began the fall semester. That was my first time. I, I literally just went on Google, Google Gustavus Adolphus College, looked at pictures, and I was like, that looks fine. Sent you my deposit. <laughs> that's a great story. And it's a reminder that... Um, you know, a lot of uh, history historians, regular listeners to the podcast, know I talk about all of, most most historians. Many of us talk about contingency, all these sort of accidents or you know dependent variables, mm -hmm. variables in life. Um, so who knows if you hadn't seen the what was it the was it Snapchat or Instagram it, whatever? Yeah, it was Snapchat. Yeah, I mean it's funny, and uh, and here you are. It's great. Um, I love that story. Now. Were you all, you you made your double made your double majoring in biology and classics, and I'm, you know some people might say what why those two? But what 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 brought you to those two majors? Did you know, for example, already you were interested in one or both already in high school? Yeah, for sure. So I knew I wanted to be a biology major because I was coming to Gustavus with the mentality that I was going to be on a pre med track, um, prepare myself for the MCAT, prepare myself for medical school. And I didn't find classics until Gustavus. So my freshman year, um, before I came, I was reading what are good majors to take if you to declare if you're going to be a pre-med um, major on a pre-med track. And biology obviously makes sense. So I decided, well, I like biology and I like STEM. So that makes sense, obviously. But then someone had written an article that was written that said that uh, a Latin class, for example, would be very helpful for medical school since a lot of the terminology has either Latin or Greek roots. Yes. I was like, sure, why not? So I enrolled in the Latin class with Professor Matt Pincero, who is near and dear to my heart, and he's become my advisor now. Um, and I loved it. I ended up falling completely in love with the language, completely in love with learning about Romans. And we even talked a lot about mythology, which I was interested in, but it was really never fostered as a kid. I just read books about it, and I was like, oh, this is kind of cool, but it wasn't really dived, like delved into like everything else. So then I took Latin 101, didn't take one or two because um, it kind of clashed with my schedule for biology and my STEM major and everything. But then um, before the summer, Matt Pincera had sent me an email and was like, hey, why aren't you, in, why aren't you um, enrolled in Latin one or two? And why aren't you doing like a classics major or minor or whatever? And I was like, well, Latin was fun and everything, but I don't know if I can do a double major. And he was like, it's okay, just do a minor. So then by the fall, I got enrolled in 201 with a new professor who's not here anymore. But it was a really good class. We learned a lot about Augustus. And that's where a lot of my disdain for that man comes from. But that's a story for another day. Um, 
So I wrote in that, and then I ended up declaring a classics minor my sophomore year. And then one time I was sitting in the uh, formerly known as the Diversity Center. I was sitting in there, and in came walked um, Yuri Hong and her husband, Sean Easton. And they had all there constantly been asking me, are you going to declare a major? Are you going to declare the major? Because I was already a minor. And they're like, it's just a few more classes. It's mm. nothing too bad. And I caved and I was like, fine, fine, fine. I'll That's declare the major. Because one of the reasons I didn't want to declare the major is because I had to take the um, senior capstone, which had a lot because it's a red D class. So There's a lot of writing and reading. I did writing. not want to do that. But then I ended yeah. up declaring the major. And now I'm done with my classics major. Which is yeah, congratulations. Um, the major, it's a fabulous major at Gustavus anywhere. I, um, I sometimes wish I had majored in classics. It's certainly related to history. And, you know, great faculty. Always great department. Uh, yes, I love the classic department. Yeah, Professor Pansiera, Matt Pansiera, Yuri Hong, Sean, uh, Easton, they're all just great and others. Mm-hmm. So um, good for you. That's exciting. Now, I have to ask you, I cannot resist what is it about Augustus? Come on. What, what is it? You, you, okay. You, you see, <laughs> see, Augustus, okay, I kind of hate him, one, because the month of August was named after him, and I'm a Leo, and I'm born in August, and I'm like, why would that just know? He was a bad man. He was a bad, bad man, okay? he There's this book he wrote called The Race Gestai, which means things haven't been accomplished. Basically, it's a, a book about him, written by him about things that he did, but written from his perspective, of course. And it's just a bunch of BS in it of him talking about, oh, I mean, he did do a lot for the Roman economy and the Roman society, but he forgot that he killed a lot of people, you know? He kind of just mentioned that as like an afterthought when there are actual other sources by other philosophers like Suetonius and Tacitus talking about, this is what actually happened. And Augustus is over here saying, no, I did this and this and this. And I'm like, you're just a liar. So he's a liar. And, and a phony, as Holden Coffee would say. And I just, I, I'm not a big fan of Augustus. I mean, I can't resist saying, I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> it's too bad he didn't have Twitter, right? I mean, geez. I, I, oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> I would have lost my mind. I love it. I love, um, I hear your 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 passion for the subject and your voice. And I just love that about you. I often tell my students, you know, some of my heroes and a lot of people like to test they're dead. I understand. Oh. They're dead. I'm a historian. I get it. You know, but they're still my heroes. Or I have crushes on certain people. Men, <laughs> men, women, you know. I know yeah. they're dead. Uh, I just think it's great to, to to have the kind of connection you do to that to that history. Thank you. Um, the practical aspect you said about about Latin. Uh, my my brother in law is a doctor, and um, so I, under, I understand that. Yeah, way. and also um, my classics yeah. major forces me to do a lot of critical thinking, a lot of. Um, development of written and uh, oral skills. So my my writing has become a lot better, mostly because of my classics major and because yeah. of the uh, con- contextual subjects with especially Latin, because I'm Latin based. I'm not Latin and Greek. I'm just Latin. Mm-hmm. So learning Latin has really improved not only my speaking skill, but definitely my writing skills. It's always fun to see a word and be like, oh, I know what that means in Latin mm-hmm. and kind of use it as a little flex. Yeah, you, you literally have taken the words out of my mouth. I was going to mention my, uh, I was just remembering my brother-in-law. I did not just remembering him, but, you know, he's a lawyer, but just remembering that he took Latin also. Mm-hmm. And that helps, it can help you so much in law as well. Not only because of the terminology, but just what you just said in terms of uh, writing and, and thinking clearly and critically. Yeah. That's a great major. Um, I, um, a student I'm very fond of, an alum now, uh, who majored in biology and honors history at Gustavus. And I love these combinations where people might think, how do they go together? And she's in marine biology. Oh. Um, and, you know, she basically uses history. She looks at the history of how whales fed, right whales in particular. So sometimes what you think, you know, isn't what is is the case, right? These things really do go together in some useful ways. It does. So I love that. Congratulations on, on what you, so did you do the, uh, you did a capstone paper for the class? Yeah, I ended up actually writing the paper for the capstone. Yes, I did. What'd you do? What was it about? Um, so my paper was on, uh, let's see if I can even remember This was during COVID. So my brain is just like, you've, oh. repressed, you've repressed the trauma. Yeah, I definitely. Um, I think mine was on, oh, I know what it was on. It was on if uh, we can actually detect if there are emotional bonds formed between um, family members within Roman society. 
based on the text that we have from Rome and the facts and evidence that we have about the relationships formed between them. Because we talked a lot in our in our class about the social bonds and emotional bonds and how that's very important for, let's say, for example, the nuclear family in our modern era, whereas like the Romans, they had very different definitions of what a family constituted of or who exactly was part of their family. So just looking at those relationships and seeing if we can detect that based on the writing and evidence that we have. That's fascinating. That sounds great. Thank you. You know, you're reminding me too, I just saw something a few days ago in the paper about, I think it was yeah, a chariot was was uncovered or discovered somewhere, and what they can learn from the wheels, and um, really, really interesting. That's cool. Yeah, very cool. Well, so again, congratulations on that. Uh, you're still doing the bio major, I assume? You're yes, yes. I'm taking the last couple classes for my biology major this semester, and then, unfortunately, I have to leave Gustavus. Well, we'll get to that. We're not there yet. <laughs> Um, you, still, you still have some weeks, and we have a few more minutes, too. Yeah, about two months. Yeah. Let, let's talk about, um, you know, you've done a lot of work around um, equity and inclusion. Sometimes, you know, the word diversity has sort of fallen out of favor for, I think, some good reasons in any case. But you were involved, as I mentioned in the introduction, in leading uh, the Diversity Education Exploration Project, acronym DEEP, D-E-E-P, um, Tell us a little bit about that work in that organization. For sure. So DEEP is, I don't want to say fairly new, but obviously older than me, but fairly new at East Davis. And it is an organization that essentially the goal is to expose other students that are part of the BIPOC communities to other cultures that they most likely would not have gotten an experience to. So it's an immersive experience. So what it does is it sends out applications. People have to apply and say why they want to be in deep and why they think, you know, the whole jazz about why you think you'd be a good candidate and all of that. And then it whisks everybody away. I think every year they take about 15 people along with an advisor and then they travel to a different state. Uh, it's mostly a different state. Sometimes it's just a different city around here, but it's mostly different states. And they just immerse themselves in the culture. So there are three different pillars for, for DEEP. There is service and excellence. So with service, when they go to the place that they're going to, to immerse in different cultures, they find different volunteer opportunities. For example, um, we were supposed to go study Chicano culture in Colorado before COVID hit. So we had our plans. We had our hostel booked and everything, and we're going to go volunteer at different food banks and different clinics around the Colorado area that we're going to be staying in, but that didn't happen. So there's that. There's also the excellence part. So uh, for us, we're going to go to different museums and um, universities to talk about opportunities to study like DEI work or other work that people might be interested in. Um, and then for the museum part, it's just to learn the historical background about the Chicano culture, um, good things, bad things, medium things, all that jazz. So it's a really good opportunity. Um, and it's not just like, oh, you get it because you are part of the BIPOC community. You actually have to be a committed individual and actually be committed to the work that Deep does. It's very cool. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, just great. Um, were you involved only last year? Had you been involved? Were you involved in earlier years where you could go somewhere? I actually was not. I had heard of it. And I, every single um, year, because they go during spring break, kind of like, um, what is it called? Well, the Habitat for Humanity. Yes, Habitat for Humanity does. And every spring break, I've either had, actually, every spring break, not either, I have had a track meet. So I couldn't go for sure. deep, but I decided to sacrifice my meet last year and go and immerse myself in a different culture. But COVID had other plans, so. That's dedication, though. I'm sorry, we'll, we'll come to your track. Uh, activities in a bit. Um, yeah, I just think it, I, I really I learned more about the organization reading about your involvement in it, and I think it sounds fantastic. And as you say, it's really it's serious, right? It's not yeah, just for sure because it yeah. takes. Um, we start planning because we have our members uh, basically arranged by October, and then everyone gets separated into different categories and different things that they are going to handle. So some people get to do like food and entertainment. Some people get to do logistical things. Some people get to do like daily planning things. And then each person we meet like at least twice a month to discuss. And um, it's also a paid trip because we do go to a different place and we get funded by the, through the diversity leadership council DLC. But then we also have our members pay dues, which encourages us and ensures us to use more resources and be able to do a lot more things than just the money that we get from DLC. So it's, it's, it's dedication for sure. 
Yeah, that's great. Just fantastic. Boy, maybe I'll look into being their advisor. It sounds so yeah. interesting. Yeah. The, um, uh, the, other, the other organization you're involved with, which I'm, I'm more familiar with, not as familiar with it as my wife, Kate Wittenstein, was uh, before she retired, but is uh, the Pan-African Student Organization, mm-hmm. or PASO. I will, I will never forget meeting the then, um, I think she was, maybe she was the only, the, the, I don't know if she was a co-president or president uh, of the organization. This would have been 1986, probably. Oh, wow. Meeting and, you know, wanting to be supportive. Kate taught African-American history. And anyway, uh, and, you know, just, just kind of, as I say, Kate especially, I've tagged along at times to different events over the years. But I think that's an incredible organization. You've been a real leader in that and still are. Um, tell us a little bit about PASO and your role in it. And then we can talk also uh, about what PASO has been up to this year, which mm-hmm. I find interesting. For sure. So PASO, like you mentioned, stands for the, the Pan-African Student Organization. Um, our whole goal is to just expose the Kisivis community to different things about Black culture. Like if you talk about the Black spirit, the Black heart, the Black mind, lots of things about Black culture. Um, so our members aren't just Black people. I feel like by saying the Pan-African Student Organization, people feel a little bit excluded. But we are open to any and everybody joining our organization. We're not closed off and we don't gatekeep our experiences or our resources. So we're mostly tasked with just educating the Gustavus community about all things Black. So that includes celebrating Black History Month, celebrating um, Kwanzaa or celebrating Africa Night, for example, or um, even our little hip, we have like a hip hop night type of thing that we're planning, well, Mm -hmm. trying to plan with COVID. But that's just a little bit about what PASO does. I think, um, you know, one of my favorite events, I've gone to the Kwanzaa and then the... um, Africa Night, which I really, really enjoyed. One of the things I love, first of all, the talent. Isn't it Africa Night where there's, well, maybe both events are singing and dancing. And I mean, I, it's amazing. And I see students I know, I can't recognize you because you're all dressed up. And yeah. Looking, <laughs> yeah. Amazing. But um, did you, are you having, uh, you did have an Africa Night this, uh, this fall yet, or is that coming up? I can't remember. So our Africa Night is typically planned for the spring. Fun okay. fact, actually was the last event that was in person at Gustavus before we were sent home last year. Um, we had Africa night on Friday. By Tuesday, Gustavus was like, yeah, y'all got to get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> so we left. Um, but Africa night is typically in the spring. Um, it's planned by three co-chairs within the PASO organization. And they essentially just try to come up with a theme that celebrates something about our heritage as black students on campus. And we just have a bunch of different entertaining factors. We have music dancing usually we will invite outside guests to right. come because we get a budget through um student senate and dlc um but la- like last year we had an artist who painted lupita Youngo, uh her character from black panther i think her name yes. i think it's like nakia i think that was her name um but he painted her in like five minutes or maybe less that was super cool and we had a little drum group come we've had poets come we've had singers come it's a very 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 cool experience and we also have a fashion show and the best part that people like is the food of course the food is amazing oh my gosh <laughs> food the um one one the one year i went over you just reminded me there was a dance troupe from the twin cities it was incredible yeah. we had them come my sophomore year again i think i know yeah, what we're gonna talk about. yeah. They, they're just fantastic mm-hmm. um the other thing is uh, 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 about it, it's packed. I mean, I love going. There's a lot of electricity, excitement in the air. It's just one of those events where you, you feel like you're at a place where it's happening. I yeah, yeah. Typically, <laughs> we see it about 500 people because um, Africanized, all student-planned and student-led. So we usually run out of seats, and there's people just standing at the back. That's amazing. Now, so are you are you are doing it this spring, or has it happened? Or we, it we actually got approved to host an Africa Night this year with obviously limited capacity. So our coaches are currently in the works, trying to get creative with having that um, work for us. We I think we got approved to have it in Lund, which has its own capacity of people. So we're going to be sending out a spreadsheet. First, we're going to send out an invitation to faculty to ask if anybody wants to come before we send it out to the wider Kasevis community. So we did get approved to have an African night. Right now we're planning to have it in April as opposed to March, which is typically it is in March. But um, with like the lack of planning and also not knowing if we were even approved to have it in person, we had to push it a little bit bit back. But we're trying to have it because a lot of our 
um, leader or leaders within the organizations right now are either seniors and we just felt bad that they're not going to get to experience another African night before they have to leave Gustavus. So we're trying to at least have something for them so that they can remember that. That's nice. And, um, the other, the other thing you, you mentioned, I think you mentioned Lund. Is that what you said? Lund? It'll be mm-hmm. Lund? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lund. Just for, again, for listeners who don't know, Lund Center, which is this amazing athletic center, and they're, which they're going to be sort of redoing, renovating, making even better uh, over the next few years, which will be exciting. Yeah, which I'm kind of salty about because it's after I graduate. Yes, you'll have to come back. I know, I'm right. sorry. <laughs> You can do that free ninth semester or whatever we're calling it. Oh, know. yeah. Yeah. No, that's my mental state. is not quite there. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I, again, I just think, I think PASO is really, really an important organization. There's a history of it to be written, sort of been written by some bits and pieces, but there's just a lot to dig into, even in the archives and the library. Really, oh, really yeah. We also we recently history. found out that, oh, sorry, that it was uh, formerly called the Black Student Union. And then yes. it turned into the Pan-African Student Union. And then out of the Pan-African Student, Student Union came the Diversity Center, which is now called the Center for Inclusive Excellence. So there's a lot right. of dominoes falling for that. That's right. No, that's all true. And um, I, I'm somewhat acquainted with that history um, for reasons I don't need to get into here. But yeah, I, I think yeah. it's really important to capture that history and to uh, look into You know, we have the college yearbooks going way back, the news, uh, not only the weekly, the newspaper, but other earlier publications. That's really quite interesting to look. I'm teaching a course on 1968 and looking at what, uh, in part, what some uh, black students on campus then were doing. But it's all there, right? Just waiting for people to dig into it and do, yeah. do some research. So congrats on that. I'm glad to hear there's going to be an African night. That's cool. The other thing is, um, I was impressed with this. You know, this is the historian in me, of course. You, uh, Paso was involved with Black History Month in February. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the theme was something like know, know, the, know your history or know the past and shape the future. Yeah, or know was your that? past, shape the future. Okay. I, could you talk a little bit about that uh, theme, what the intent was, and what, what you did? I think you were showing movies, among other things. Yeah, so... It was kind of difficult this year because typically we try to get Black History Month to be very interactive, especially since we're trying to educate the Xavis community about Black history, specifically in the United States. Um, but this year we had to adapt uh, an online format, which kind of worked, but obviously everything has its downsides. So we have um, co-chairs that are in charge of planning the Black History Month events. And this year our two co-chairs were Zach and Abby, who were both sophomores at Gustavus this year, and their intent behind um, the whole theme of Know the Past, Shape the Future was kind of inspiration from all the events that transpired this summer with everything from like the George Floyd killing to COVID to the Black Lives Matter um, movement protests and all of that. They were trying basically to educate the Gustavus community that the only way we can move forward as a generation and to have a better future and not repeat history like we keep doing is if we know our past and utilize that past to shape a better future. So the whole thing yeah. was just knowing the past of black of black people, particularly African-American people in the United States, and then using that past and seeing how we can move forward and shape the future for those people. Well, if I were in charge, all of you would be honorary history majors. Oh, no. <laughs> Um, it's awesome. I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, that's why I'm thinking of a, a very well-known African-American historian, maybe my age or maybe even a little older, who wrote a little bit about, just a short essay about how I became a historian. But one of the things he says in that piece, that he writes in that piece is, you know, I was an activist and then I realized, uh, you know, I needed to understand the history behind the issues I'm trying to address as an activist in this particular community. And it's so true what you just said. I mean, how can we know, how can we know where we are, how we got where we are and shape where we'd like to go without a sense of history, right? And so that, that was all music to my ears. It looked to me like you were showing, there was like a movie series too. Is that true? Yeah. So our events, we had events planned for Thursdays and Fridays of the month of February. And then Monday through Sunday, there were different black or historical, historically black figures posted on our Instagram page with little facts about them. So on Thursdays, we would typically do an event. So one Thursday, we did like an open mic night where people could come and share some slam poetry work or sing or anything they have for that time. Um, And then each Friday, we showed a different movie. 
So we started first, we wanted to just get in, like, just get people comfortable. So the first movie we showed was, uh, I forgot what it's called. I think it's called like Halloween something with the, one of the Wayans brothers. It was a comedy. So it's just kind of to get people to ease into that. And then we showed Hidden Figures, Just Mercy, and I forgot what our other movie was. You didn't show Get Out, did you? Get Out, did you show? You didn't show Get Out, did you? No, I don't, I don't, did we? We probably did, actually. But there are so many different things to pick from that the the coaches were asking me and my other co-president, Inker Kabisa, and they're like, what should we show? And I'm like, I don't, you lost me. Because I don't, I don't even know. Because we only had four Fridays, so we had to pick four movies. So there was yeah, not like a wide theme no, that they, they picked. There are so many great movies right now about African American culture. Yeah, and also we're trying to show movies that just didn't depict Black people within their trauma. So things that right. were surrounding like yeah. Jim Crow era, or things surrounding slavery, or things surrounding right. things like that. Right. We're trying to be like Black people can be happy too, and here's yes. movies that show that. Thank you. Hello. Exactly. It's true. <laughs> group. Yeah, it's not just a story of despair and horror and yeah, oppression. Exactly. exactly. Um, that that's just terrific. So I was really I was really impressed just looking at uh, the program online and especially that tell your co presidents, especially that um, that theme, know the past, shape the future. Thank so you. I want to ask you uh, this is a, a personal question and you know take it uh, take go with it as you uh, see fit. But what was it like for you? What is it? Ha- what has it been like for you to be a, a black student? And, and, you know, not, not an, you know, not a black American, African American, but an African student on a mostly white campus in a mostly white town. In a, still in a mostly, mostly white state. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what um, is it? What is it like? Yeah, for sure. So growing up in Liberia, I really didn't even identify as black anything because Race is not centralized back home as it is here in the United States. So I was just known as Tyra. I didn't have to tell people, oh, I'm a black woman or have these two identities be put forth before people know anything else about me. Um, But then moving here and looking like every other black person or I guess appearing with the skin that I have, I got categorized quickly and had to act accordingly, I suppose. So um, I, I went to... Well, more of a diverse, in quotations, school from in Brooklyn Center. And then when I went to Rhode Island, it was a predominantly white institution like Gustavus. So I was kind of used to that coming out of high school and then coming to Gustavus. Um, But sometimes I've gotten so used to it, I kind of don't even realize it anymore. I've just gotten used to being the only black person in my classes or the only black person in some organization, or the only black person that's speaking at somewhere, the only black person that's doing this. So kind of that whole tokenism type thing, because, um, you know, there's not a lot of black people here. And one of the dangerous things about tokenism is you can't keep choosing the same person. But at, at the same time, I'm trying not to be a token, but I also am very passionate about the things that I'm being asked to speak on. And I do want to share my views so there's kind yes. of like that little, it's a hit yeah. or miss sometimes, but right. it's been a very change. interesting time for sure. I definitely have found, I would say found myself in quotations, um, being like Gustavus, I came as like fresh out of high school, uh, you know, sharp mouth. I'm kind of am still sharp mouth, but sharp mouth and just kind of close minded and being set in my views and in my values. And Gustavus has taught me a lot about how to be open minded and how to engage in conversation specifically. Like right now, I'm the only graduating senior in my, with a biology major. Well, I'm the only graduating senior in the biology department and the only graduating senior in the classics department that's black. Like black anything, right. not just a black woman. So right. it's definitely, that's something I didn't even notice until my sophomore year when I got inducted into the Classics Honor Society in a Sigma fee. And for, as part of tradition, we have to sign a book that everyone else has signed that has gotten inducted. And I was just like flipping back. And then I asked Yuri, I was like, do you know if there are other black names in here that I could possibly find? And she looks at me and she goes, I think you're the first one. And I was like, oh, that's great to know. So I'm currently the first black woman to be inducted um, in the Classics Honor Society, the chapter here at Gustavus at least. And I'm the only black woman in my graduating class for classics and biology. So it's definitely been an interesting time. Obviously, everything has its ups and downs, but 
I try to right. navigate the word and mind my business. <laughs> yeah, good for you. Thank um, you. The, um, you know, what about, I, I've always been interested in this too. This is just something I've been interested in from the you know, moment I arrived at Gustavus. What, what is the relationship like, if you can generalize, I know it's you know, hard, but um, bet- between, uh, let's say, students who are uh, from Africa, wherever in Africa, I could save us, and then uh, black students from, whether it's from Minnesota, wherever, with it, from within the United States? You know, <laughs> that's a great question. We actually have been having several conversations on that and how there seems to be a disconnect between African-American students and African students, whether African-born students or African-descent students or anything that falls under that little umbrella. And I would say there's obviously a disconnect because, um, for example, let's take me for example, I grew up in a country that I know as my own. I have a language that I speak that I know as my own and all those things compared to my African-American counterparts who have very little clue where their family from, where their family is from, or have anything about their historical background that doesn't include the stains of slavery or the stains of Jim Crow or the stains of femi- of sexism or something else, some ism that their family has faced in this country. And yeah. I feel like a lot of African kids kind of fail to see the privilege that we hold in that respect, that we have. Um, a historical background that we are aware of, or we have somewhere to call home that's not just stolen land that we just happen to be brought on or something like that. So there has been a disconnect and we, we try to have a conversation about it. What, my junior year, fall of my junior year? It just, needless to say, it did not go very well um, because people were kind of uh, mixing up race and ethnicity and saying, oh, well, I've been called the N-word and I'm African because the whole thing was, the whole point that people were trying to say was, oh, well, I in the United States, I get looked at as a black person because I appear as a black person. I have the same skin as you. So, for example, if I get pulled over by a cop, they're not going to ask me what part of the Atlantic did I come from. <laughs> Just see a black person and that's about it. They see black and they're scared. But then at the same time, it's different because... If an African person, for example, if I get pulled over, I have the privilege to use my accent. I've noticed that police officers and even uh, a lot of our white counterparts treat people, African people differently than they treat African-American people. Because there's a certain stereotype about African-American people that it's being so hard to be let go that as soon as someone, for example, if I want to switch my accent, if a cop, if a cop pulls me over, then you'd be like, oh okay, so you're not one of those people. Like, you're a different type of Black or something like that. So I feel like a lot of us African kids need to realize that we are privileged in a lot of ways. Granted, um, the majority of people still see us as Black people and still call all of us African-Americans, although not all of us identify as African-Americans, but we still have privilege over our African-American counterparts. And that's where the disconnect comes from because people are trying to say, oh, well, you're not Black, or someone's trying to say, oh, well, I'm more Black than you are. And it's a whole crap show, to be completely honest. But we're working on it. <laughs> well, you're working on it, and you know, it's it's also it's part of the history of Pan Africanism and Pan African groups, right? Organizations. Right. Um, it's it's you know, there's the rhetoric, and there's the ideal, and then there's just the reality of things one has to work through. Right. And you're also reminding me that um, you know, this is even an issue now with, let's say, uh, uh, Kamala Harris, right? Is she black, right? I mean, because right. you know she. Like people trying to quantify blackness or what exactly right. constitutes what makes one person black over another person. And exactly. my whole thing is, it's subjective. You can't tell another black person that they are not black because they don't fit your stereotype of what being a black person should be. There is not one collective black experience. We each experience our blackness in different ways. And That's there's right. no one person that experiences that more than the other. That's exactly right. And the other thing is, uh, you know, even even uh, Barack Obama, right? I mean, he, you know, some would say, well, you're not really black because your ancestors weren't enslaved, you know? <laughs> exactly. Or people would not, people would never call, but obviously people are never going to call Barack Obama a white man. Because right, exactly. if you're a mixed person, you always get assigned the inferior race. Right. And that's just how society is. Like, they're never going to call Barack Obama white. The same way black people are going to be like, well, you're not really black. So exactly. I feel bad for people that are mixed because I'm like, where do you even fit in? 
Yeah, there you know, there's also this. Gosh, there's so much to talk about. There's this fabulous exhibit. We should talk and pass. There's a great exhibit um, at the Science Museum in St. Paul on race. It's a revised exhibit. It's just incredible, and how race is essentially, you know, bogus, right? It's a construction. Is you're you're starting to get at, you know, what makes me black? Well, you know, how do I see myself? Right? I don't mean me literally, but what you were saying earlier. Anyway, I wish we could go. Um, I talked yeah, to. Yeah, I have a whole conversation about this. No, no. I mean, there's so much to learn and think. Um, and I do think. I mean, I'm I'm proud of Gustavus. We, you know, we it's efforts uh, led by Siri uh, Erickson, the chaplain, and by the board and others, faculty and students, to, to you know come try to come to grips with with racism and racial justice. And you know, part of this is well, a lot of it. Let's be frank, is in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd in May. Um, so, thank you for all those um, those those reflections, which I think are quite quite important. Um, the other question I want to ask you about now is your involvement in track, right? Yes. I mean, I, I, I'm thinking of this picture of you in the profile in the Gustavus paper where you're uh, jumping. Tell us a little, is, is it the long, I guess, is it the long jump or what do you do? What, what, what are you doing in track and field? What yeah, attracts you? Sure. So my event groups are um, short sprints and jumps. So I do horizontal jumps and that just includes long and triple jumps, but I'm a trip. I'm a, Oh, I'm not a triple jumper. Oh my goodness. I'm a long jumper. I can never triple jump. Don't have that skill. I'm a long jumper and I'm a short sprinter. So for indoor, for short sprints, I run the 60 meters, sometimes the 200 meters and then outdoor. I do the hundred and sometimes the 200, but then long jump indoor and outdoor. What's a long jump? I mean, literally how long, how far? What's it like? For, so there's yeah, a board that, so you have a runway and then there's a board that's about, depending if you're um, a male or female athlete, there's a board that you have to step on and just land in a pit of sand. So you literally just jump in a pit of sand like a child and they count how far you jump from the board that you stepped on into the pit. What's your long, what's your own personal best? My personal best is... What? Well, they do it in meters, so I'm gonna have to convert here really quickly. Uh, about 15 feet and eight inches, which isn't great, but it's still something. Good lord, that sounds great to me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You've been you've been doing you've been doing track. Well, you were doing track even in high school. No, I actually started track at Gustavus. What drew you to track at Gustavus? Mostly my friend, Deanna Giles, she dragged me, if we're being honest. I was just minding my business, and she was like, do you want to come run on the track team? And I looked at her, and I go, do I look like a runner to you? No. Because I was, like, straight out of high school, I was probably, like, 100 pounds. I was a tiny child. And I was like, no, I don't think I want to do that. But then my sister had ran track in high school, and she ran at Concordia. So I, then I found out that they were part of the Mayak, and so it was Gustavus. So I was like, oh, if I join the track team, I can see Zara all the time. So I was like, fine, I'll join because I want to see my sister. And then I joined and I ended up falling in love with the sport because I actually had always wanted to do track in high school, but I never had the time with my academic obligations. So I was like, fine, whatever. And then I joined and I haven't left in the last three years and six months. So, Well, you've got to be good, not only good at track, but good at managing all that you do. Uh, because yeah. you two demanding majors and then all of the hours spent practicing and traveling to meets and being in meets and on and on and on. That's, that's impressive. Yeah. Um, and with track two, it's every day for two hours. Sometimes we go two hours and 30 minutes. And I think one of the philosophies about being a gusty is that you're over involved. And I think that's basically what I, I live at this point. <laughs> you, I think goes back to my introduction. You're, you're setting a new standard, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Maybe you should relax a little bit now that it's your last You know, semester. once I graduate, the plan is for the first week to sleep and then, yeah. then try to do something with my life. Yeah, good plan. The um, the other thing you're involved in, we, we mentioned earlier, is you're, you're a collegiate fellow uh, in one of the dorms. And what, what, what are those responsibilities uh, like? So I live in Euler, which is coupled with Runstrom. So the CFs are in Euler, also do rounds and Runstrom. So essentially, the whole role of this of a collegiate fellow is to be a liaison between the community and residential life to ensure that students are living quietly, peacefully, and everything abiding by the status policies in the in the residence halls. So 
um, you're typically with our staff, at least there's only seven of us. There used to be eight of us, but one of our staff members is not with us anymore. He's not dead, but he's not with us anymore. Um, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, but the, essentially, the the if you're on duty, you have to do rounds within Euler, so Euler East and West, and then down and down the hill to Runstrom, do a round in Runstrom, and then typically during weekdays, there are three rounds at eight p.m., nine thirty, and eleven. And then on the weekends, there are four. There's 8, 10, midnight, and 2 a.m., which is the last round. And that's, like, after quiet hours to make sure that residents, especially if you're in, like, a dry dorm, which is a dorm for people that are underage. So, for example, my room would be a dry room because I'm under 21 and not allowed to drink. So ensuring that they're following Gustavus policy. So with our staff, you're typically I'm on duty every other week because we're only, like I said, seven people and we have, I don't even know how many residents. So um, it's demanding, but you know, I get my room to myself. So that's great. <laughs> yes, I can relate. I, I, uh, I had a roommate my first semester and then that was it. I got a, a single room. Uh, I, I can hear, I can relate totally. But what is it, what is it, um, you know, I mean, one could hear you speak and think, wow, this sounds really like a bummer. You have to enforce rules. But it's more than that, right? What's your, what's your favorite part about being a CF? My favorite part, honestly, has to be my residence. Um, last year, I was a CF, but I was a CF for first year. So I lived in Coed. And my favorite part about, especially being with first years, is I was like their introduction to the Casabas community because they came with a clean slate and really nothing, they knew nothing about the Casabas community and about how to go about, you know, being a college student. And I could be there for them. I could be that inspiration or even that resource they needed. And I love that because I loved helping them, um, you know, get acclimated to the Casabas environment or even to the college life. And my favorite part, like I said, is definitely with my residents and helping them. This year, one of my best friends from the track team, actually, is my resident, lives literally outside of my door. So I see her basically every single day because not only do we live in the same dorm, on the same floor, we're also on the same team and see each other five days a week. So I really love getting to talk to them and getting to know them as people because I feel like, especially with Minnesota, it's the, the Minnesota way to just say hi and you know, how are you? Good, great. And never see that person for the rest of the day. Whereas like with my residents, I get to talk to them, ask them, you know, what's your favorite type of cheese or something like that? And I feel so obnoxious asking questions like that, but what you going to do? I tell them you don't have to answer, obviously. Right. That's right. Oh, I can tell. I'm sure you're very good at it. I have no doubt. The other thing I want to touch on just briefly is you, uh, before we conclude here in a bit, is you've been, uh, uh, I, I don't know what the word is, elected to uh, this organization on campus called St. Lucia. And then I think you were named St. Lucia. Tell us a little bit about what that involves. Yeah. So I was the St. Lucia, what, sophomore? Oh, my gosh. That feels like so long ago. Sophomore year at Gustavus, which was, what, fall of 2018. And essentially, the Gustavus community and the Gustavus College tries to stay um, close to its Swedish roots. So the whole legend of St. Lucia comes from Sweden. And it talks about this uh, this lady that was a uh, light in the, her community. She was a beacon of hope. She had all these characteristics. She was compassionate. She was a leader and all that good stuff. So Gustavus elects um, a court of St. Lucia members every year. So it's, uh, it has to be sophomore women because St. Lucia, when she died, they said that she was about 20 years old, which is typically the age that a sophomore in college would be. Except I was 17 when I got, when I got elected. So that was a story for another day. Um, so when I got St. Lucia, I was very shocked because I was like, you know, I don't go about my day being like, hey, am I a light in your life today? Did I make you smile? I'm just yeah. being Tyra. And I guess me being Tyra was inspiring to people enough for them to even elect me to such a huge honor. I didn't even know it was a big thing until the day of the St. Lucia Festival when I walked in the chapel and the entire chapel was filled with so many people, mostly alumni too. And I had to walk down the um, the aisle with lit candles on my head. So right, that was <laughs> I had so much candle wax in my hair and there was a picture um, published in the Mankato Free Press that literally someone took a, pi a picture of me when I first realized like candles were lit and I look horrified. And that was on the, <laughs> on the front cover of the newspaper. And I was upset because I was like, why would you do this to me? 
Right. And I hope they're having someone follow you with a fire extinguisher. <laughs> right, right. As soon as I came back, they immediately turned it off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, um, the, other, the other thing uh, about that is you're, you're elected to, to, correct me if I'm wrong, are you elected by fellow students, members of, of St. Louis? Is that how it works? Yeah. So you have to get um, nominated. And then the top, I want to say five or six women get um, put in like the, the, not five, final six. That's for the actual court. There's like a final number of people with the most votes that get put into the final poll. And then people vote for those people. And then the top six women get elected to the St. Lucia court. And then they're part of the court. And then the final voting comes when they vote for St. Lucia out of those top six women. Well, congratulations on all that as well. Thank it's you. exciting. The, um, although I have to say, I'm not sure I want to, want to walk anywhere with burning candles. And right. That wasn't even <laughs> the weirdest part is St. Lucia, apparently, the, her legend goes that. They saw a woman with light on her head. I don't know why they thought candles. They could have done electric lights, but whatever. Um, <laughs> with a light, a light, a lighter wreath and the white gown and everything, carrying like food to the poor people because she became a mater. And it was like we had to get up at what five a.m. because she apparently because it was during Christmas, so we had to go caroling. We literally were in the dorm halls at five a.m. singing Christmas carols. Like, if I woke up to that, I would have freaked out. Just saw a bunch of women in white gowns with with laurels around their head, holding candles and singing Christmas carols. I just, the whole part just freaked me out because I was like, guys, we, we are freaking people out. Someone opened their door and just looked at us so dirty. We, we hurried out of that dorm hall because we we're like, oh, we're so sorry. We have to do this. Oh, that's funny. I love that. What about, um, to conclude here, I've been kind of resisting this because it's your senior year, it's your last semester of your senior year, and it's been amid COVID. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, I, I'm sure there are things you wish you could have done, could do in person, but just as you, as you start to think back on this pandemic year, uh, started as we know last, last spring, what, 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 are your, what are your thoughts and feelings? Yeah, so this is obviously not how I pictured my senior year. Um, right. So I have this group of friends that I met during my, my first year at Gis Davis that was practically my crew that we, we hung out all the time. But as we got older and, you know, it was sophomore, juniors, uh, sophomore junior year, we kind of just drifted apart. But we came together before COVID and said, we have to redo freshman year because it was so fun. We had so much fun and we laughed and made so many memories. So we had drafted all these plans and all these things we we're going to accomplish. I could save it before we left. And then bam, COVID was like, no, you're not going to do that. Um, so it's kind of disheartening to think about that, especially when it comes to graduation, knowing that I'm not even going to get to hug my friends because some of them are probably leaving the country, leaving the state, setting out for other big goals and things. And it's just, it's very sad because I'm like, well, when am I ever going to see any of you again? But um, I'm grateful for being back on campus and having some of my of the people that I've met here on campus. Because even though we have masks on our faces and we have to be socially distanced, at least I still have some type of human interaction with them. That's not just seeing them from a computer screen on my phone screen and being like, are you even real? Is this even reality? Or are we living in a simulation? Um, so I've been grateful for that part, at least to get to see them and to get to talk to them again. But besides that, senior year is going all right, I guess. It's as good as it can go for the circumstances. I would say that. Yeah, that's well said. I, I feel exactly the same way. Uh, yeah. I haven't been teaching in person online. And yeah, that's exactly how I feel. I mean, I, I, as a professor, I know it's different. It's no one's first choice. But there is, on the other hand, real learning occurring. I'm grateful that I can see the students at least on a screen. Uh, I don't know whether they're grateful they well, can see it. Well, I the ones that turn on the camera. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, I, I, I won't get into that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you're, you're pre-med, and the plan is to take a gap year, it sounds like, and then apply to uh, med school. And it's just occurring to me, you know, well, if you become a doctor, you'll be able to look back on, you know, this pandemic, right? Yeah, exactly. And there's an article that said that there's a sparked interest with people wanting to become doctors or become practicing physicians um, because of the pandemic and seeing how it's affected, especially the United States, so devast uh, so devastatingly, question mark? I think that's the word. Yes. How about, by the way, how about quickly, how about Liberia? Do you have any idea how, how it's going there? 
We um, so we were hit harder by the Ebola crisis than we were by COVID. So I was back in Liberia when Ebola hit us, and I was there for like the first what seven eight months of it, which is quite an interesting time. Um, but COVID hasn't affected us as much as Ebola did. Like Ebola wiped off a good chunk of the population, whereas COVID it hasn't been a huge inc- or huge or incremental number of people. Good. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Tyra, speaking with you. I can't wait to um, <laughs> meet you in person. Right. So, you sound like a lot of fun. Thank um, you. With. Um, best of luck with everything the rest of your semester, all your work. Um, and I guess uh, I might see you. I don't know. No, I don't care if faculty will be allowed at the graduation ceremony or not. Yeah, but I'll be, who knows at this point? Out, right. We're making... It seems like we're headed in the right direction. I know as a historian, you know, we're going to get through it. It will end, but maybe not as fast as we'd all like. But seriously, it's been really fun. Um, seriously, it's been really fun. Yeah, I guess. Well, yes, seriously, it's been really fun um, to speak with you. All the best. Thanks for sharing all that you did. Um, and take good care. Thank you. Have a good day. Likewise. Bye-bye. Bye. Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Gustavus graduate Will Clark, class of 20, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College.